Welcome to On the Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. Hi, I'm Andy Simon, and as you know, when you come to listen to us, I'm your host and your guide. My job is to get you off the brink. What I want you to do is see things through a fresh lens. I want you to see, feel, and think about it in new ways so that you can soar again. Often people come to us, our clients, all the clients in our book On the Brink came to us stuck or stalled. They couldn't see what was all around them. Individuals do the same as we coach them. The challenge is how can a little anthropology help you see yourself and your business through a fresh lens? I'm so honored today to have with us for an interview that I just think is so remarkable is Dr. John Kern. Let me tell you a little bit about why I'm so excited, and then you will be as well. Listen carefully. Dr. Curran is one of the pioneers of organizational anthropology. Now, remember, I named myself when I launched my business as a corporate anthropologist who helps companies change. At the time, I didn't realize there weren't any corporate anthropologists, much less people bought me because they really needed to change. What I did, they had no idea. So what I want you to listen to us talk about today is what is anthropology and how does it apply into organizations? He combines his expertise in the social sciences and group dynamics with process consulting, systemic executive and team coaching. See, we both sort of share the same kind of thing and research to work with senior leaders and their teams to develop dynamic and collaboration for organizational cultures that connect their values with those of their employees and wider stakeholders. In short, John and I share a common world where we want to bring the method, tools, and anthropology and that theory into organizations to help you do things better. And humans are complicated critters. You know, they hire me to help them change and then put me in a closet and lock the door. Please don't come out. I hate change. So it's really interesting. So a little bit more. Um, Dr. Curran owns a, holds a PhD in social anthropology, formal training in organizational process consulting, executive coaching, systemic team coaching, a whole lot of stuff. He's an associate consultant at the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, which I hope he will talk a little bit about. He's owner of JC and Associates Consultancy and a visiting scholar at the Royal College of Art in Design Anthropology. Now that, we have so much good stuff to talk about today. It's going to be such fun. His clients have included Coca-Cola, Hallmark, Novo Nordisk, J&J, all a lot of the top, and everybody else who wants to come and hear him talk and share. Um, John, thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful to be on your podcast. And it's... Um, one of my go-to podcasts. I um, learn from it all the time yeah. as well. So it's wonderful. Well, then I will make sure that as I'm recording and, and bringing my guests that I'm you're my audience. It is interesting. Um, John had a great article from his thing on how meetings are, are held. And I'll, I'll get to that toward the end because I thought it was so insightful. We all are frustrated with in, in, ineffectual, dysfunctional meetings. And he said, just look at the the roles people are playing and how they're doing it. But let's talk about you. What is your journey been? Share with us. Okay, that it's actually, it's a kind of privilege to be able to share because you don't really think about your journey much. And I knew you were going to ask me the question. So I did a little bit of thinking. And I guess I, I, I came into anthropology from a kind of indirect way. I, I think I became interested in culture unknowingly. And my first ever real job was when I was probably 
when I was 17 or 18, but my real job was probably I was about 20 years old. I failed all my exams at school. I was an undiagnosed dyslexic. So um, you know this idea of failing. Painful. Oh um, my gosh! And and it, it was it was in that sense you learned actually how to look in between the lines. You had to survive. You had to hustle in a way, right? So, um, but what I did, I got a job as a cleaner or a domestic staff at a day centre for the homeless in central London in Victoria, and it was run by Catholic Irish nuns. Um, and my <laughs> boss was actually a homeless guy. And it was kind of from then I started really taking on board the dynamics, what's actually going on in front of me. And also how just wonderful it was. I had such a great kind of experience and journey. And it was only kind of in my early 20s, I started going to night school again and kind of I had the diagnosis of dyslexia, I got confidence back in me. And it was then that I kind of realized, well, I'm not going to be able to do statistics um, I need something that I can use my brain and my creativity. And this thing called anthropology merged. And mm. I remember reading quickly an introduction, you know, first few pages and shutting and going, right, that's me. I've got it. I'm, mm. I'm going. So I was very lucky. I, I went from night to go, went to the London School of Economics, uh, which was the kind of founder of Brit traditional British anthropology um, and where Malinowski was and, and all those great names. And it was whilst doing my undergrad that I started working to make a little bit of money as a, a care assistant on psychiatric wards in hospitals and psychiatric hospitals. And it was then I realized that there's my PhD. I'm going to do a PhD. And I'm going to do it on the culture of psychiatric hospitals. Wow. And that's it. So I spent two years being a member of staff and actually working the shifts as the ultimate participant observation for two years and understanding power dynamics between the different sections, all the way from the domestic staff, all the way up to the consultant psychiatrists and the policymakers and how that was played out and fluid and unpredictable on a daily basis. So it was very much looking at the microcosms or the micro aspects of everyday culture, but making bigger theories around how policy and ideology and values and mission statements and actually how they actually do do work out so that that was my kind of journey in and I got I got my PhD and uh, and then it kind of developed from there I, I spent time um, whilst I was writing my PhD I got approached by Microsoft and this was completely outside my area if I wanted to understand how people use mobile phones so that kind of led me for a few years into the world of innovation and you know the, the world of design and market research and advertising and branding but I was always more interested in in the in the aspects of organizational culture and group dynamics and that's where I sit now don't you love it I'm going to share just a smidgen of my own background. You'll know why John and I feel like we're part of the same tribe, because I discovered anthropology as an undergraduate, and I went, oh, that's just like you did. It was like an epiphany. And then I went to Columbia to get my last 18 credits in anthropology. I didn't have to transfer. I had gone to Penn State, and it was just uh, the the depth of Conrad Arensberg and Mervyn Maggot and and Sidel, I mean, all the Ernestine Friedel became my mentor, and it was like, how could you beat the best of the world in in a field that I just sort of became a religious believer in? I wasn't even sure yes. what I was going to do with it, um, but it is it it sort of was who I was as opposed to what I was going to do. 
when I met my husband 56 years ago, he said, what do you want to be now that you've grown up? I said, well, I can either be an attorney or an anthropologist. He said, I'll be an anthropologist. He also said, I'll be here for you, which he is. But it was one of those uh, supports. And I had no idea what it was going to be, but it has served us well, hasn't it? Wow. I, yeah, I, I really like what you said there about how it kind of becomes part of you. Um, so you don't do anthropology for a specific career, right? You know, that's, that's a no-no. And it, it made me think about when I was doing my PhD at Goldsmiths University, which is part of London University, um, I had to do some um, seminar teaching for, for young undergrads. And what I would do, I'd get them to spend a week and they would have to go and travel on London buses, you know, the red double-decker bus. But they would have to spend half the week only going on the top deck. And then the second half will be going on the bottom deck oh, and look it. at the cultural differences of the two, you know, so you could go into symbolism of gender or masculinity upstairs and, you know, Sherry Altner, binary oppositions. And I remember the feedback that they gave me was, we can't go anywhere now without looking at something anthropologically. That's right. And it only took that moment of, now you couldn't bring them to Samoa, but you could put them on a bus, a normal right comfortable and gives them a job to look at it through a fresh lens to see what was actually going on. And that's when you say to people, humans are meaning makers. Nothing exists out of context. And so the upstairs and the downstairs are two different contexts. Same, yes. same thing going on in a whole different fashion. Wow. Exactly. So, um, you have had so many great experiences. Talk a little bit about um, you got going, you got your PhD, and can we about your journey just a little bit longer? Because you and I could get into the yeah. details of life, but I'm, I'm anxious no, to share you. That, that, that's great. So, I mean, well, they're kind of two, two worlds. They're still kind of overlapping. They both fed each other. When I was working mainly in innovation and, you know, I would be brought into ad agencies to help the planners design and think in a certain way anthropologically and planners and advertising we're very much the anthropologist to a certain extent. But also when you're thinking, you know, when you think about innovation around medicine or, you know, diabetes and, you know, the anthropologist can go and really understand how people live, are living out their experiences, how they might take, for example, a medical device that they use in their everyday lives, um, but how in their everyday lives it has a different symbolic meaning. Yes. Why they had it isn't just it doesn't just have the use value of say administering insulin. It it, it isn't functional. It's also part of the body. And it, when you bring in these anthropological theories and observations, you are able to work that back into the organisation. You know, like a medical device company or a pharmaceutical company, and challenge how they perceive the products that they they use as a means of being able to design for the in, for the person designing for culture designing for emotions and not designing just for function yeah you know it's interesting i was at a, an epic conference a number of years ago and one of the panel was why can't we get our clients the ceos or the c-suite to believe the research that we have done for them they immediately deleted and I was for, uh, you know, I spent 10 years as an academic and then 20 years as a, an executive helping banks and healthcare. And, and what went through my mind, and I said it gently, was they don't trust what you brought back because you haven't ever run the business. Mm -hmm. you're, you're helping them see something from the outside. You saw it, but they don't trust that you really know what you're saying. 
And if they if you had taken them with you, maybe they would have. What are your experiences? Do people, the um, the Nova know disc, I mean, do they really understand what you brought back to them? Do they apply it? How do we communicate and communicate? Because this is all about transformation. Exactly. Well, I think actually Nova know disc are a unique example because they're, they're the ones who have got fantastic anthropologists internally yes. who um, they've done some great work around ethnography. It's very much part of their DNA. So they're probably the, the and I know a lot of the leaders will be going into the field as well or do go into the field. But if you think of it by and large around companies, yes, this idea of when you do take execs into the field, it's life-changing. Okay, <laughs> they, they all of a sudden realize that their products or the services that they're you know, they're, they're offering customers, let's call um, there's a whole different world. People appropriate brands, products to fit into their lives, not the other way around. So <laughs> then you can go another level and then you start working. Well, if you're looking at the values of your company, how do they align with the values of your employees, but also your customers? And then all of a sudden you've got this kind of concentric circles moving out and out. And then all of a sudden you've got the holistic picture. And you can start thinking holistically with execs. There's also another problem, which is been around for many years, but this idea of risk. And when you're coming back with just stories and insights based on theory, it's not an Excel spreadsheet. It hasn't got statistics. It I don't know you're going to say that. I knew you were going to say right, that. Right. So, you know, so can't be real. Can't. Yeah, well, exactly. And especially in a digitalized age where, you know, the worlds are coming together. I think that that's probably less of a, a stigma now. Days, but um, but but it definitely was a massive barrier. How do we quantify this? You know, we could do a survey of ten thousand people globally, but you're going to only visit twenty people. I mean, that doesn't weigh up, right? So you had to. There had to be a lot of education, a lot of even training for execs. And the final area, which now does very much still exist, where this is what really put me back into the world of group dynamics and organizational culture, was silos. Yes. So if you're thinking that you're doing the best, most amazing piece of anthropological research around consumers and you run the best workshop and you've got whatever, it, it, everything's on, on, it's just perfect. You're not taking into account that the people who you are serving are coming potentially from cultures, organizational cultures that are siloed. Yeah. So if you have engineers in the room and you have marketeers in the room and you have sales in the room, they are three different tribes. <laughs> yeah. they serve, they've got three different ways of thinking about what, and they also need to protect their expertise, okay. their identity, their subcultures, right? So if you go in going, Da-da, here's the anthropology and we're going to revolutionize and we're going to shock you, they will look at you and they will say, oh, we can project back onto you. We're not playing ball. <laughs> it's too much of a threat to us. So then you have to work in a different way with them. And you have to respect the silo to a certain extent. Well, the silo is there, and it's not going away. Yeah. And I, you've hired people in because they're good engineers or good marketers or good in finance. You know, I was a bank executive, and and you, as you step back and you look, having conversations, even lunches with people from, it was like one was speaking Roman and Latin, and the other was talking Greek, and 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 the words didn't have any meaning. For the other and uh, you needed dialecticians who could move from one to the other and make it real and those are real i mean that's life that they're living and with comfort and yeah. and and as you try and make them now conclude the customer 
Um, who is that customer? And is it the buyer or is it the user? Um, and it's a complicated world we're in. Having said that, though, corporate anthropologists, anthropologists in general, have had a far better time of it recently, over the last, I'll say, five years or so, um, than earlier, um, because we were academic. In fact, I tried to hire some from a university for a client, and they said, no, no, we're just training them to be academicians. I said, oh, wouldn't it be nice if they could help a business do better with their academic expertise. I was most interesting. Um, But I do think that business, um, the fact that Intel had anthropologists, Jennifer Bell was there, Microsoft has them, the government uses them. Um, I think uh, there's a growing awareness that we don't know what we don't know. And and design thinking has made ethnographic work extremely important. What a deo does, it goes out and it starts by observing. And you're doing design work as well. What kind of work are you doing with the design anthropology? So the design anthropology came about, again, out of the innovation where I would be looking and I'd be always very interested in, you know, we could look at products and how people actually use products as I've mentioned previously but what I was and I'm still very interested in is the workplace and how you know as designers and some people say anthropologists are designers by default to a certain extent but the way we think there there is a lovely crossover there um traditionally anthropologist isn't really coming to a conclusion They're, they're leaving things hanging where designer needs to finish something but what I will be doing is talking to the world of design and architecture as well around what does a workplace actually mean? And I know that we've got differences with hybrid work and and post-COVID, but, you know, what's the symbolicness of space? Yes. And a wonderful example, actually, was when, um, I wasn't part of this, but when Lego started up their new headquarters in London, uh, they used to have signs which were little cardboard cutouts of VW camper vans saying, don't park here meaning, you know, you must be on the move. Don't make a place permanent in the workplace. <laughs> Don't eat your food there. And people started rebelling against that, right? They're kind of thinking, well, actually, if I want to eat my granola at my desk, I should be allowed, you know, I should be allowed to do it. And, you know, and that's a really brilliant sign that you can think that you can design perfection that's going to enhance collaboration and well-being and and all these things. But if you've got... A management system that it's dysfunctional it doesn't matter what type of sofa or how many table tennis tables you've got or how much free beer there is on a friday it doesn't work so you have to actually think about your designing for some, the, the, the unconscious as much as the actual function as well so that's that's what i try and problematize that's what i do i think that's a key thing of anthropology you take what is given as a norm and you, I, I, I use a rather kind of brutal thing around. You get a sledgehammer, yes, and you, 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 you dismantle that normality, and that's what the anthropologist does. You don't take anything for granted, and you're looking in between, in between the lines. It's a classic thing. If you, if you read Shakespeare or Hemingway, or you read, you know, Alice Walker, you're not reading the words. You're not reading the sentences. You are feeling an emotion and you're interpreting what's going on. So that's why the two of us could read the same novel and have a different interpretation. Yes. And, that's the, and that's the anthropology as a kind of the ethnographic text, ethnographic writing. It's interpreted. It's extremely powerful. 
It is. And it's also the secret of our success, isn't it? And now, a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled, or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey, Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings, and the brick walls, and become the best that they could be. They heard things like women aren't lawyers and women can't lead and women aren't in geosciences. And they said, of course we are. And they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back and ask yourself, where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at andysimon.com and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books. And you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves, very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now back to our podcast. Um, so this is so interesting. So I made a note as I was thinking about this because um, Lego had an idea um, that really maybe never they asked their folks about it. Um, they came up with it and it didn't work the way they had anticipated. Um, it always is interesting to me how um, a group of people, call it the senior folks, have an idea and they forget that the folks who they are giving it to I have no idea what they're telling them, what the story is, what the expectations are. They're not engaged in the design. And somehow they think it's going to percolate down. It doesn't work that way. And humans have stories in their minds. And we've learned from the neurosciences and cognitive sciences that you live your story, right? Yeah. And you're usually the hero in it. So I noticed that you also have a background in in the brain stuff. You know, how do you weave together the the neurosciences with the anthropology, because I I try to tell people, you know, you live, you decide with the heart and the eyes, and then your brain gets in it. And you have a story here. It's trying to figure out what this is all seeing. What are your thoughts? Well, that's a good point. And I think probably just, I'm, I'm probably more with the brain around the kind of psychoanalysis. So the, the neuroscience, of course, comes into that also comes, comes into culture, but I've always had an interest in the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is leaning on the likes of Freud, Klein, Jung, um, but then much more into groups as well. So Winnicott uh, and Dion as well, um, who I'm very, very influenced in. Um, <clears throat> what I find really powerful, and this is especially around group dynamics as well, but not just group dynamics in organizations, but in life, is that coming together of the anthropology with the psychoanalysis or what we what i what i'm into is what we call system psychodynamics which is how the individual becomes part of a group 
and how they're these kind of games and interactions that are largely based on the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a really powerful thing. And Melanie Klein was very influenced or influenced a lot that way of thinking. So we've heard these terms projection, transference, counter-transference. And if you bring that into also the world of anthropology and vice versa, you can be looking at team dynamics in an organization. And I'm looking at the unconscious structuring of ritual. Rituals of defense, rituals of change, rituals of power and authority. Those are the three ones I claim are the big meta ones. There are other ones going on. Now, within those rituals can be things around gender, around misogyny. All these everyday issues are being played out as well. What we wear, the clothes, where people sit around the table, all these type of things are unconscious, often unconscious, right? But they are forming cultural stories. The, the, the anthropologist Michael Jackson always talked about stories being the blood vessels of culture. Yep. So we can't have culture unless we have stories. <laughs> those, stories those stories are communicated often unconsciously. And that's why, I mean, I, I, I've trained, I've done the first year training, not the seven years training, but in group psychoanalysis. So that's also rarely that the group itself becomes part of the culture. Don't lose that thought. Let's emphasize it a little bit. <laughs> because um, dysfunctional group is at war with itself um, because each of the people in the group haven't come to terms with a shared story. Um, yeah. And they're each carrying their own agendas. We hear those words, but there's something deeper than tactical, practical stuff going on here. They really yeah. see themselves in a different fashion. And that is very powerful. Now, how do we build, therefore, better groups? Thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think that that's a really good. I, I like kind of in a way starting with this idea that a group or let's say a team, and if we're talking about organizations, can always have an element of dysfunctionality to it because it's, you know, so that's kind of what I'm entering into. And that's what I, and that's kind of okay to a certain extent, but a group needs to focus on, um, what we call the primary task. You know, that's actually what are we trying to deliver, yep. right? And then if you've got silos within the group or between teams, that becomes harder. And then there might be defense <laughs> mechanisms being played out. Anxiety then creeps up. Um, by on the, 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 be on the, the, the psychoanalyst who, who kind of invented this, spoke about the basic assumptions in groups. And that's often things around dependency in other words, we'll do whatever the leader says, or we all admire the leader. You're not going to really have collaboration then. Or you have the things of fight or flight. We've heard this, but you know, I don't want that change to happen. It's going to threaten me or threaten my professional identity. So along a journey, you can have all these kind of um, stakes in the ground of dysfunctionality. Yeah. And the way that you work with that, and I'm passionate about this, is I'm kind of trying to, I'm selling, it sounds like I'm selling myself here as the external consultant, but it's trying to empower teams to be, have this element of being reflective on themselves. And when I talk about empathy, I don't talk about empathy as a nice kind of word, how it's being played out. I don't talk about even empathy walking in the shoes of other people. I think the first real thing about empathy is being empathetic to yourself which means having the ability to challenge yourself and be honest about yourself. So if we were in a meeting and 
I felt that you were being defensive or trying to derail my idea. I might not tell you that, but I'll walk away feeling something in my stomach. And the next meeting, I'm sure I'll bring that back into the meeting. Interesting. So how, how we, it's about coaching. It's about, we, we, you know, the term psychological safety. Yeah. How do you create psychological safety where challenge can happen? Mm. And there's a, one of my colleagues at the Tavistock Institute, um, Camilla, she talks about creating an environment that's psychologically safe enough. So not psychological safety, but psychological safe enough. And what's beautiful about that concept is it's allowing for dysfunctionality. It's allowing that people in a team will have different levels of what safety is. If you're a woman, if you're from a different race, if you're white, male, heterosexual, you're going to have, you know, there are these, these different personas or cultural toolkits you are bringing into that space. So psychologically safe enough, think about creating a culture of reflection as well and challenge. Challenge is really important. Not easy. Do you have a case study where this has worked or you're working that you can share? And if you can't, that's yeah. fine. It's something that concretizes it a little bit. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, I mean, it's basically I probably all, all the all the stuff I work on is that. <laughs> you know, so I could be, I mean, so I, I won't give you a kind of I can I can talk, you know, I'm doing a lot of work with executive teams. Okay. And they are highly pressured. Um, they are highly pressured. They're all coming out of post-COVID. Yep. They are, and, and not just the exec teams, but the middle management and below are all feeling exhausted, yet they need to think about the primary task, yet they all need to be facing in the same way. And, the, you know, a lot of the exec teams and, and, and senior management are having to create what this idea of hybrid working means. There's no, no one knows what it means. No one knows what the future will be of it either, right? So, but what I will be experiencing is that there are tensions, but those tensions will not be exposed. Through team coaching or facilitation, there's a process that I use where I'll do qualitative kind of semi-structured ethnographic interviews with all the key people individually. And I'll bring that into the space and then I'll reflect back what people have told me, in, uh, confidentially, but what people have told me. And then everyone feels uncomfortable because they're experiencing uncomfortableness, but what they're experiencing is the, what they realise deep down is the truth. And then I've kind of got them, I've got them contained. And I could, if this is you, what you told me, now how are we going to work with it? And I can be the object of projection, so they can go, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And I've had, this is great, carry on. You know, there's no problem here, right? But I'm also in that space, I am being the anthropologist. I'm seeing the workshop setting as an ethnographic space. So I'm also decoding what rituals are happening, the fences, and I'm picking all that up. Even the uses of cultural artifacts, the flip chart, who's going to get up and do the, these are all there. It's all data. Yes. Everything is. <laughs> but it's also very challenging, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah, it's not It's not easy to do. And you are dealing with human beings. You, and this is where it's very different from being an anthropologist in the world of, say, uh, innovation, where you go in and you're experiencing sensitive stuff, but you go out. I'm, I'm containing a group. 
Yeah. And it can it can fly off the handle at any moment. And you could say something wrong that could spark. So it's challenging and it's also it's draining. And you need you do actually you need a supervision structure below you. Yeah. And that's what I use a lot of supervision. So as though it's the therapeutic space. Before we, um, I we could keep going because I'm fascinated. Um, before we uh, do wrap up, though, share a little bit about that um, newsletter with the article about meetings. I think oh, it's yeah. tactical, practical, but very insightful about the. I'll give you the context. When I got into healthcare, uh, people met like you know, fifteen, twenty people would come together routinely for a meeting. I was an ex banker and an anthropologist, and I was sitting there trying to figure out what are we doing here. There was no agenda. There was no takeaway. I didn't have any idea of my purpose, and nobody bothered to tell me either. But we met, and when I dug into it, they said, "Oh, that's what we do." I said, "Oh, okay. We come together to meet. Tell me about meetings. <laughs> tell okay, that's great. Look, I, I gave a, a talk. Um, that's online. Actually, I'll, I'll send you the link as well at the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. And the Tavistock invented what we know as organizational development um 1947 i think so and it created this idea of post at the time it was being born out of the second world war about having to understand you know how teams work in the military but coming out of the war it was looking at issues around the, the coming together of the social sciences with psychoanalysis to understand how organizations work so anthropology was there pretty much from day one Right? This is something that we need to really write about in the history of anthropology. But it's looking at, um, you know, the, the the meetings. I gave the talk and I was I hear so much about we have too many meetings. <laughs> and this was the name of the title in lots of the business journals and the newspapers, the financial, lots of things about meetings is destroying everything, you know, especially online and Zoom. And I came, I flipped it, as all anthropologists should do, is flip something and say, maybe this term, we have too many meetings here, is a defense mechanism. And what I started to do was look at the ethnography of meetings mm -hmm. and meetings that I sat in to realize actually that they are communicating lots of other things beyond the primary task. So meetings should be there to make a decision or sharing information or resolving conflict. You know, these are what meetings traditionally are for. But actually, I, I saw that actually people would use meetings as a means of checking each other out. You know, what are you wearing? Or, you know, and I, I, I use an example of the water bottle. But meetings are also there as a means of trying to drive change. But there is conflict that isn't being dealt with that exists within the meeting. So therefore, it's too fearful. We won't come to a decision. OK, so we'll have another meeting and we'll have another meeting. So a meeting becomes an avoidance of conflict. Yeah. So I was trying to show actually that meetings have so many different dynamics to them. And what I introduced was a model that I've created or a tool called the culture empathy map. And it's a process, a step process that people, either consultants or anthropologists can use, or it's something I train leaders to use. And that's how do you decode the rituals, the being the anthropologist in the meeting? What's yeah. actually going on in front of me? And how do I know to prepare for that? But also, how do I know to reflect afterwards based on that? So it's called the Culture Empathy Map. And it's a tool that's there, not just for meetings, but also for workshops and group dynamics within organizations. But you're almost trying to make them see the world as an anthropologist might. And well, I think that's, that's exactly. 
you need to step out and look in as if you weren't part of the meeting, if you're going to really understand what's going on there. If not, you're going to be a participant in that game as opposed to an observer of that game. And, and I said, good leaders sit and listen and watch for a while before they participate because you really don't know what's coming at you until you watch. But if you're going to respond to everything and get involved in it, then you really are going to be part of the problem, not necessarily a leader to take you out of it. It's an interesting thing. That, that, that's so good about the idea of listening as well. Leaders need to listen to learn yes. and not listen to respond. Yes. You know, that you respond true. once you've done the learning and you've done the reflection, then you respond. That's a really good point. Yep. Well, even as I'm listening to you and myself, the tendency on my part is to try and take what we're talking about and put it in the context of things that I've experienced. I'm trying mm -hmm. to make it relevant in some fashion, reflecting perhaps, but I'm going to urge our listeners to listen carefully to what John's telling you, whether it's in a meeting or in your business or in your family life. Before you jump in and answer, you know, wait, listen, because what you think you heard isn't really what they said, nor what they meant. And so consequently, you have a lot of interesting things going on here in terms of the dynamics. So on that note, I do have to wrap us up because as much as I love talking to you, it's such a pleasure. It's truly an honor. I'm having such fun. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Um, John, if they want to reach you, where will they do that? Okay, well, um, I on Twitter, I'm at Dr. J Curran. LinkedIn, I, I'm quite active on LinkedIn as well. Um, and I've got a I've got a podcast called the Decoding Culture Podcast, and there's also a newsletter called Decoding Culture. So <laughs> those are the places you can find me. I, I'm out there somewhere. Well, I'll make sure that's all on the blog, and people can find you even on the video at the back of it. Thank you for joining me today. For our Thank listeners. You. Um, I know you enjoy our conversations. Keep sending us great people to talk to. Um, I found John on LinkedIn or a post of some kind. I went, oh, let's do it. And he was so kind to come and join us. So now remember, my books are available at Amazon. Um, Rethink is about smashing the myths of women in business. And it's about 11 women who did just that. Talk about change. And On the Break is a fresh lens to help your business grow with a little anthropology to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. It's why On the Brink with Andy Simon emerged as a podcast. And I love doing this. So send me your thoughts at info at andysimon.com and we'll get back to you right away. My new book comes out in September 23. It's called Women Mean Business. And it's the wisdom of 101 trailblazing women who are sharing with you their insights. They very much want to help elevate other women. And I must tell you, as you read their wisdoms, you go, ah, oh, this is like a Bible of all my best stuff. None of them were profit-driven, no purpose. They want to help others. They build networks. Ah, it's very interesting. Culturally, listening to women from different industries talk about their lessons learned and how to share it. So I'll send you a copy as soon as it comes out, John. Take care now. Thank you all. Thanks for coming. Stay well, stay safe. Remember, turn your observations into innovations. Be a little anthropological. You can be an anthropologist too. Just look, see what you think. Bye now. <laughs>